0: For those of you that have your notebooks for this series, What's the Difference? Page 78 in those notebooks, page 78. Let me uh, mention one announcement, and that is on the 11th of January, so two weeks from today, during this hour, we will begin a four-week series in another room called Newcomers Orientation. That is, as the name suggests, for those who are new to our church, to give you an orientation to who we are, where we've come from, what we believe, where we hope to go in the future, uh, a full amount of information to help you make a decision as to whether or not this would be the place that God would have you to serve. As we say in the uh, program, and for that announcement, there's no obligation to you if you attend that and we don't come after you uh, after it's over to say, okay, what are you going to do? We want you to join, sign on a dotted line. We don't do any of that. We give you the information, and then the ball is in your court for you to decide what you're going to do with it. But I encourage you to take it so that you have that information. So those who are not members of our church, you're looking for a church home, we provide that for you three times a year. So I encourage you to take advantage of that. Two weeks from today, I'll be teaching that in one of our adult classrooms out that back door and across the, uh, the hallway. And we are now at the point in this study, what's the difference, that we are looking at the development of, the beginning of, Denominations. And we have noted in the last couple of weeks an event called the Protestant Reformation that began in the year 1517. And as the name suggests, it was a protest. So those who participated in it were Protestants, Protestants, and it was for the purpose of reform, reforming the church. But we saw last week that reformation of the church was impossible because the church excommunicated, kicked out of the church, those who wanted to reform it. So even though it was not the reformers' desire to uh, start a new church, start their own denominations, they were forced to do that. So men like uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich uh, Zwingli left the Roman Catholic Church and were leaders in the Reformation in different parts of Europe. So on uh, on page uh, 78, you see at the bottom of page 78 those names, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. Luther located in Germany, and uh, Calvin in, uh, in, and Zwingli in Switzerland. And these were major outposts for the, the Reformation. But each of them had slightly different different views. Those different views then gave rise to some of the denominations that we see today. So today and next week, I would like to give as clear a picture as I can in that limited time as to how some of the particular denominations developed through, through that. So on page 78, you notice that we have forms of government and the significant of, significance of sacraments. And the, the point I want to make about those is this that as you analyze a particular church and you want to get an idea as to where it came from, these are two categories that you can use in order to get a feel for that because these are the two major categories or two of the major categories that the reformers had to deal with when they left the Roman Catholic Church. They had to deal with what form of government will this church take. And they had to deal with liturgy or worship. In particular, the sacraments uh, of communion and, and baptism. In Roman Catholicism, they were convinced that both of those issues were handled erroneously, and they wanted to reform them. All right, we have some notes. Who needs uh, a set of notes? If you guys will get your hands up. John has some back here, and Larry has some here. Larry, right behind you. There you go. And who needs any over here? John will get some to you, okay? And we're on page 78, for those who are getting those notes, page 78. And we have two full notebooks. All right. Anybody need an entire, has never had a notebook in this series? Even though we're toward the end of it, we're giving the whole notebooks away. Uh, because we don't want them laying around here. So if you want a notebook, seriously, let uh, get your hand up. John will get one to you. Anybody want a notebook? All right. There's, uh, over here is a hand, John, uh, for a notebook. Phyllis, you looking for a... Okay, Phyllis uh, is in the front here. She had her hand up there. And then uh, Stephanie's looking for a notebook as well. But there's only one left, Stephanie. So you guys can fight over that. You guys can arm wrestle over that. All right, on page 78, on this issue of government, a form of government and liturgy worship, the sacraments... Those were two major categories of what the reformers had to deal with that had been erroneously handled in Roman Catholicism. Now, how erroneously? In terms of government, we've seen that the government in Roman Catholicism was the pope and the magisterium of the church. So the church is ruled by by the pope, and the pope can make pronouncements ex cathedra from the chair that are on equal par of authority with, with scripture. We've seen that. So the reformers needed to reform that. There's no one whose pronouncements are equal in authority with the church. They believed in something called sola scriptura. And then in terms of worship, Roman Catholicism said that communion, the Lord's table, was, uh, was the, the mass. And in the mass, the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of Christ. And so in mass, Christ is re-crucified for sins. And so they believed that to be blasphemous. And so both of those areas, the government of the church and the worship liturgy, especially around the sacraments, had to be reformed. But there were nuances, differences in how that they, they reformed those. And there were different types of government that came out of that. And on page 78 we have those. There's the monarchical form, the Presbyterian form, and the congregational form. Now, I just want to point this out about those three forms of government. They are just that. They are forms of government. When we say, for example, in B, Presbyterian, we're not referring to the Presbyterian denomination. We're referring to the Presbyterian type of government. And different denominations can have a Presbyterian type of government, even if they're not Presbyterian. They can be known by a different name. So obviously Presbyterians have a Presbyterian form of government. But there are others who have a Presbyterian type of government. Lutherans have a Presbyterian type of government and I explained last week and I explained briefly in the notes on 78 what those forms of government are so I'm not going to repeat that here but I just want to make that clear that these are categories of government, they're not referring to particular denominations and different denominations can have these forms of, of government. Lutherans can have a Presbyterian form of government, as I said. The monarchical form of government is actually found in some denominations that I'll mention when we get to it today or next week uh, that I grew up with. I grew up in a Pentecostal denomination called the Church of God, headquartered in Cleveland, Tennessee. And the Church of God has a form of government with a, what they call a general overseer. And then in each of the states, there are what they call state overseers. And then the churches have pastors. Now, do you see what's been done in the Church of God? They call the state officials and the national official an overseer, and they call the leaders in the churches pastors. But we saw several weeks ago that in Scripture, those are synonymous terms. Overseer, pastor, presbyter, elder, these are all synonyms for the same person and the same office. So when you see that kind of hierarchical form of government, often it's accompanied by differentiating these terms to apply to different people. And that's something that the Bible doesn't do. Those terms apply to the same person in the same office leading a a local assembly. So that's a monarchical form of government. But it's not Roman Catholic, it's not Episcopal, it's, the, it's a Pentecostal Church of God. But that's the type of government that they, that they have. Okay? So those are forms of government and then the significance of the, the sacraments. And bear in mind as you look at how our Presbyterian friends, our Lutheran friends pursue, for example, baptism, that in its beginning these were all Roman Catholics. They were all former Roman Catholics, and they carried in with them some aspects of their Roman Catholicism, including infant baptism. So it is, uh, it is an historical fact that infant baptism was practiced in Roman Catholicism, and those who left the Roman Catholic Church in their reform, there were some things that they did not thoroughly reform. And as a result, you had some who were reforming the reformers, And I pointed out to you that they were called the Anabaptists uh, last week, the re-baptizers. All right, that brings us to the top of page 79 then. You've got reform of government. You've got reform of worship. And then I point out reform within the Anglican Episcopal Church of England. And the reason I have a separate point for that is because in A, B, and C you see that some groups came out of the Church of England, groups that would become important for us here in America because those people came to to America. In England then, the Reformation took the form of the Church of England. As I pointed out to you last week, in America the Church of England is called the Episcopalian, the Episcopal Church, sometimes called the Anglican Church. At the top of page 79, I say, Henry VIII can hardly be mentioned as a reformer in the same sense as Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. The church he began and ruled differed with Roman Catholicism, primarily in terms of the individual in whom the government of the church rested, the king rather than the pope. Nevertheless, he did start a new Protestant denomination that would spawn others in the years to come. Now, how did that happen? Well, in the, within the Church of England, there developed a group called the Puritans, so now you're going back to your American history a bit, and you're remembering the Puritans having come to the, the New World. But who were they? I remind you of who, of who they were. This quote from Cairns, under point A, the Puritans contended that too many, quote, rags of Popery were still in the Anglican Church, that is, the Church of England. And they wanted to purify the Anglican Church in accordance with the Bible, which they accepted as the infallible rule of faith and life. This desire led to their being nicknamed Puritans after the year 1560. So that desire to purify the Church of England gave them the nickname the Puritans, but they weren't looking to leave the church. They were looking to reform it to, to make it better. That's the Puritans within the church in England. But then you had another group within the Church of England, called the separatists. And the major point of difference, middle of page 79, between the Puritans and the separatists was the idea of the church covenant by which the separatists bound themselves in loyalty to Christ and one another, now note this last phrase, apart from a state church. So they believed in separation of church and state and clearly the Church of England knew nothing of the separation of church and state, the king was the head of the the church. So they not only wanted to purify, but they wanted the church to be separate from the headship of the king. Separation of of church and state, thus the separatists. Now, we know a group of these separatists famous for coming over on a, a boat called the Mayflower. And you see that next paragraph. William Bradford became a member of this separatist group. And it was members of this group who finally migrated to America in 1620 on the Mayflower. So you have the pilgrims and you have the Puritans. Puritans purifying but staying within the, the church and subject to the king, but the pilgrims desiring to be separate, have the church separate from the authority of, of the king. And that desire led them to leave England and come to and come to America. The Methodists come out of the Church of England as well. John Wesley was an ordained Anglican minister who encouraged individual devotion and piety in contrast to what he saw as the dead formalism of the Church of England. Let me just stop there. Uh, Certainly it's possible for someone to go through the rites, R-I-T-E-S, the ceremonies that are associated with a church, and bring to that uh, a heart of devotion. But it is the case that when you have a formal high church liturgy, that it's very easy to just go through the motions. And what John Wesley saw was that happening that people just came, they went through the motions, and then they left. Now, when I say what I'm going to say to you here, I'm not judging because I can't. The hearts of the people participating, I can only tell you from external observance uh, what, I, what I experienced. Uh, but when I was in 10th grade, uh, for the first of only a few times in my life did I go to a Roman Catholic church. Uh, I did that because in 10th grade uh, I could not get a ride to the Baptist school that I had started attending two years earlier. My mom, uh, who did not want me to go to the public school in our town, uh, wanted, wanted me to go to someplace else, and the kids on my block all went to this Catholic school in Wyandotte. So I started riding with them and went there for two weeks. Now, I'll explain the two weeks in a, in a bit. But for the two weeks I was there, it was, it was a, a different world indeed for a, a kid like me. I was attending prior to that a Baptist high school, but I had grown up and was still in the Pentecostal church. My dad was a Pentecostal pastor. And here I am now going to a Catholic school, and one of the things they did several times a week was have uh, church, mass. I'd never been to, to a mass. So when I went into the church, you know, I was lagging behind. In fact, I was last in line as we went in. And I'm watching, you know, we're in line going through the doors, and I see people doing something up there, and I'm trying to figure out what they're doing. And I see them kind of bowing their head, and some of them are kind of going down. And when I get a little bit closer, I see that there's some water that they're dipping into. Now, some of you are familiar with this, but I it's completely foreign to me, but there's the holy water there. And you dip in, and then you do the sign of the cross. I, one, I don't know how to do the sign of the cross. And I didn't know what the holy water was for, but I saw people dip into it. And since I had They had their backs to me. I couldn't see what they were doing. So I dipped my hand in the holy water. Now, I mean no disrespect when I say this, but I dipped my hand in the holy water and didn't know what to do with it. What I had was a wet hand at this point. That is it. And so I kind of looked around, and then I wiped my pants. This is what I did. This is all absolutely true story. So now we go and file in toward the front of this old Catholic church, beautiful frescoes on the ceiling. I mean, I was, I was really in awe of it uh, when I went in. And it had the large, thick doors that when they closed, reverberated throughout. And we shuffled into the, uh, the pews, and I was in a pew about three rows back by myself. And immediately this starts. And the priest says, Grace be with you. And all of the kids immediately say, and also with you. And they went through a whole routine. I mean, they were just going back and forth. And I'm back there looking for like a bulletin, a program. They just know what to do. And they just go through it like clockwork. So then at one point, the uh, priest is praying, and the kids in my class are not standing, but they're not sitting. I can't tell. And I'm looking. He's praying, and I'm looking to see what's going on. And then I look under the pew in front of me, and there's like a contraption there for And so I start pulling on this thing. And it's stuck. And so I pull, and I get it loose, and it goes... throughout this thing. So I was not standing or sitting. I was hiding at that point. (laughs) Now, I tell you all that, that was my experience. I was only there two weeks. And uh, in God's good providence, a counselor from the school I had attended for the two years prior, and that I wanted to continue to attend but couldn't get a ride, called my house and said, hey, why aren't you in school? And I said, we can't get a ride. And she said, we would like to have you come back. We would love to have you here. And if we could get a ride for you, would you come? I said, yeah, of course. I would love to come. I just can't get a ride. And she worked out a ride for me to go back to school. And so I went there 10th, 11th, 12th grade and graduated from there what if that lady had not made that call? I don't know the turn that my life would have taken and so I thank God for Mary Lou Hage and uh, her making that call. She's now a missionary. Mary Lou Long, some of, you know, some of you know her, making that call for me. Now I say all that because when you go to a highly liturgical church it's very easy to go through the motions. Grace be with you and also with you and so on. And this is what John Wesley saw in the Church of England. And so he encouraged, again, back under sea, individual devotion and piety in contrast to what he saw as the dead formalism of the Church of England. Then the quote, Wesley did not want to break with the Anglican Church, not until after Wesley's death in 1791 were the Methodists of England organized into a Methodist Church separate from the Anglican Church. The Anglican influence in the Methodist Church was demonstrated by Episcopal polity. Now let me stop. When are we, Episcopal polity is the same as on the prior page, page 78, the monarchical form of government. So here you have the Methodist church has a monarchical form of government. They have somebody at the top, and then they have people below that, and then they have the, the churches below that. So the Anglican influence is demonstrated in the Episcopal polity and the reception of communion while kneeling at the altar rail. So each one of these reformers carried with them some of the vestiges of the church out of which they were coming. And the same thing is true in this case of Wesley in those regards. Wesley maintained both communion and baptism as sacraments rather than ordinances of the church. Now what's the difference? A sacrament most often confers grace upon the participant. That's certainly the belief in Roman Catholicism. It's the belief in Anglicanism and then it was the, it's uh, the belief in one form or another of all of the reformers that these are sacraments that confer grace upon the participant. An ordinance, as opposed to a sacrament, is a command that we obey. Christ commanded that we are baptized, and we obey that command, but there's not grace conferred to you in participating in baptism, likewise in communion. But Wesley maintained that both were sacraments. So when we have what we call Ordinance Sunday here, and we observe the Lord's Table, Communion, and Baptism, we call it that. We call it Ordinance Sunday. And we explain the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament at that time. He also, look at the bottom there, last sentence, he was also Arminian in his view of salvation. Now we're going to see what an Arminian is in just a moment. But let me just recap now here quickly. The two major categories of reform uh, that we've seen so far are the issue of government and the issue of liturgy, worship, particularly centered around the sacraments. And that's what gives rise then to the distinctives of the denominations that came out of the Reformation. They're organized, they're government in a particular way, one of the three forms that we have on page 78 and then there's the issue of how do they view the sacraments uh, of communion and, and baptism. Those two issues. But now there's this third and most important issue, the issue of salvation, and whether or not salvation can be lost. So if you look at page 80, we, I mentioned on the previous page that John Wesley is an Arminian. Uh, and what does that mean? We're going to see what that means in, in a bit. But for you, for shorthand for you, just understand that our church, that Arminian is a curse word. So you don't want to be one. okay? And if you are one, don't let me find out. okay? Don't let any of the security people we know, have in the church find out. okay? And nobody will get hurt. Keep it to yourself that you're an Arminian. All right? In all seriousness, it's a serious issue. And on page 80, can salvation be lost? Arminianism, named after the 16th century theologian Jacobus Arminius, denies eternal security. That is, it teaches that one can lose his salvation. While Arminius was a Protestant who believed in salvation by faith alone, he and his followers teach that one's salvation is conditional. That is, you are saved for a period of time, but, as it were, on probation. It's conditioned upon obedience. And if there is not sufficient obedience, or to put it another way, if there is sufficient sin, then one can lose that salvation. That's the Arminian view. You can lose your salvation. Arminians cite, next paragraph, the many passages in Scripture that indicate the necessity of persevering in obedience. There are many, many of those. That those who believe and and come to Christ through faith alone, believing alone, must persevere in, in obedience. And they cite those passages. In addition, they cite instances of supposed believers who lost their salvation in the Bible. Judas Iscariot. And Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. But two things need to be noted about these arguments. The first is this. Perseverance demonstrates the reality of our profession. Now, let me just stop there. So passages in the Bible, of which there are many, that teach the necessity of one who claims Christ persevering in his walk with Christ. There are many passages like that. But none of those passages speak of that perseverance as attaining salvation, but rather demonstrating salvation. That's what we're saying in in number one. Perseverance demonstrates what one already has. It doesn't attain something. Secondly, there is no unambiguous instance in Scripture of one losing his salvation. If you have Arminian inclinations, Arminian tendencies, trying to be kind. Don't cite Judas Iscariot as your poster child, okay? Judas was not saved. Jesus called him a devil in John chapter 6. And he indicated in John 13 that Judas was not chosen. And although the people mentioned in this other passage, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, And that's a passage that says a number of things about a group of people that have been once enlightened and who have tasted of the heavenly gift. And it describes a number of privileges, high privileges, given to a a group of people. And so although it does that, they enjoyed many spiritual benefits, although that is certainly the case in Hebrews 6, the passage does not say that they were born-again believers. On the other hand, the Bible clearly does teach two things, One of which every Arminian is forced to deny. So it's kind of tortured language, forgive me, but the Bible teaches these two things. And if you're an Arminian, you have to deny at least one of these two things in order to be an Arminian. Now, what are they? The first is this, that eternal life is a present possession. And the second is that eternal life lasts forever. If you're an Arminian, you don't believe one of those two things. You don't believe it's a present possession, or you don't believe it lasts forever. Now, how do I know this? Here's why. Remember what Arminian believes salvation is con- conditional. So, if eternal life is something that I have right now, as opposed to something I will have in the future, then the next question is well, how long does that last? How long is eternal life? And if it's forever, then the gig is up. The question is answered. There is no possibility of being an Arminian if those two things are true. So uh, it it works this way. Jesus says, and you might want to jot this down, John chapter 5 and verse 24, John 5, 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, Jesus would say that from time to time. If you have a King James Version, he would say, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Whenever Jesus would say verily or truly, truly, Jesus was saying, this is really important. Listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me. Now notice the tense here. Has eternal life. What's the tense? That's present tense. Has eternal life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. I mean, in one verse, Jesus nails this whole thing. He who believes has in the present something called eternal life. In the present, you have something called eternal life, And just in case you don't understand what I'm saying, this is me paraphrasing Jesus, in the future he shall not come into condemnation because he has in the present past from death into life. So Jesus says very clearly there, eternal life is something you have now, not something that's conditioned on obedience that you'll get in the future. You have it now. So then the next question is, how long is eternal? And of course, the obvious answer is forever. If both of those are true, then losing your salvation is an impossibility. Now, there are lots of Protestant denominations that are Arminian. I grew up Pentecostal. we were Arminian. The reason I am no, the major reason I am no longer a Pentecostal, is not the issues of spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and all that, although that's a difference as well that we'll talk about sometime. But that was not the major reason. The major reason was this issue of Arminianism and losing your salvation. And when I determined at age 19 that the Bible taught that you could not lose your salvation, then I had to leave the church that I grew up in because it taught you could lose your salvation. There are many Protestant denominations that teach Arminianism, that you can lose your salvation. Roman Catholicism certainly teaches that you can lose your salvation. In 1997, I attended a debate in New York between James White. James White wrote one of the books that I've recommended to you in the recommended resources and that we have available in our resource center called The Roman Catholic Controversy. James White is an excellent author, and uh, he's an excellent debater as well. And he uh, had a debate with a guy named Robert Sungenis, who's a Roman Catholic apologist. Uh, He's had a television program in the past. He's written some books. And they were having this debate, and I went out there for a, a conference that White was holding, but also the debate. And the debate probably had 800 people there. So this conference room was packed, and I got there early enough to try to get a seat close to the front, and I spied out where the microphones were set up for the Q&A time that was going to come at the end. So I got in a chair on the aisle near the front. The debate was about an hour and a half. White mopped the floor with Sun Genis, not to put too fine a point on it. But then at the end, they had this Q&A time. So people jumped up to get to the microphones. I was like fifth in line, so I'm going to get a question in. And, and I did get a question, and, and I said, uh, ask a question of the Roman Catholic apologist. In the debate, he had said that, uh, that justification, uh, or, excuse me, he said that although we're adopted into God's family, a son can be disinherited. That's what he said. That a child of God can be disinherited by God. It's his way of saying they can lose their salvation. So my question was, you said that a son or daughter can be disinherited by the father. Um, But I used to be an Arminian like you, I told him. Until I realized that to be an Arminian, you have to deny one of two things. You either have to deny that eternal life is a present possession or that eternal life lasts forever. So my question is, which of those do you deny? And he said, will you repeat that? (laughs) And so... I said, you have to deny one of two things, eternal life is a present possession or eternal life lasts forever. Which do you deny? And he said, eternal life is a present possession. Yeah, that's true. And eternal life lasts forever. They're both true. And then he said, but, ah, I've got a driver's license. Now, this was what he said. I've got a driver's license and my driver's license has an expiration date on it. And I butted in And said, the the reason it's got an expiration date is because it ain't eternal. (laughs) But anyway, so he had no answer because there is no answer to that. And, and, And so I want you to have cemented in your mind those two things. That if those two things are clearly taught in the Bible, and they are, then Arminianism and losing your salvation is false. And uh, this now gets to, this is not just, you know, what do we call the guys who run the church? Do we call them overseers? You know, are they located here or there? Those are issues. But now we're getting to the issue of salvation and how it's obtained and how it is maintained and whether or not you maintain it. Sir? What, yeah, well, um, in Roman Catholicism, you know, remember, in Roman Catholicism, the Bible has to be interpreted by the church. The church has interpreted it infallibly. Uh, But in the case of Robert St. you know, what he did was he said, look, later in John 5, Jesus speaks of judgment. So that must mean that the works you do must have something to do with salvation. That was his aunt, ultimate answer after the whole driver's license thing. So one thing they will do, Peter, uh, is that they will point to the Bible's teaching on the fact that we will all stand before judgment. And so their question then is, if I'm going to be judged, why am I going to be judged if the gig is already up? If I already, and, and the answer to that is, and I'm glad you asked this so I can point this out, the answer to that is, The Bible teaches two judgments. The Bible teaches a judgment called the great white throne judgment. And that is where all unbelievers will stand before God and be judged. And all unbelievers who stand before God, the verdict will be, depart from me. And then there is another judgment called the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. And Paul says there, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We, including him. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, no. That's not to determine whether or not I'm saved. As a matter of fact, there's a reference to the judgment seat of Christ as well in First Corinthians chapter three. First Corinthians chapter three, verses ten through fifteen. First Corinthians three, ten through fifteen, and that's the passage that many of you are familiar with. In the King James, it says there are kinds of different kinds of works that people do. There are works of gold and silver and precious stone, and then there are works of wood and hay and stubble. Y'all remember that? And that there will be a judgment for the works that, that we do. And these will be tried as it were by fire, Paul says. This is all metaphorical, but your works will be determined as to what sort they are. Are they the sort of works that last and have eternal value? Or are they works that were selfish, focused on yourself and would be burned up in a refiner's fire? So this judgment seat of Christ takes place. But this is a judgment regarding reward, not heaven or hell, for believers. So to answer your question... The issue of judgment is what is pointed to. There would be no point of judgment, say they, if heaven was already secured. But they fail to realize that there are going to be rewards. There are two judgments, and then there are rewards in in heaven. All right, good question. But nobody else can ask one. Because what if I don't know the answer? I mean, then what? Right? Right? So, you know, it's whenever, when you're talking in front of people and somebody asks a question, you're going, Lord, help me to know the answer to this question. <laughs> but Peter and I stayed to that question, so thank you, Peter, for, uh, for that. <laughs> Middle of page 80. If both of these are true, and they are, then one simply cannot lose his salvation. Although it's possible for one to be a false professor, such people are not children of God and therefore never had salvation to lose. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, which we will get to in a few weeks in our series in that chapter, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, and here's the word you've got to get for this debate. I, notice that word, never, never. See, Jesus does not say, here's my response to you. We used to be tight, and then you wandered. We had a relationship, and now we don't. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, I never knew you, meaning you were never saved. Never. I don't know you now, and I didn't then. You might want to jot down next to that 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. But their going out showed that they were not of us. So these are people who have departed, or there are people who, as in Matthew 7, who are professors but not actually possessors. One can profess and not possess. Salvation. Last paragraph, this issue is of vital importance for it goes to one of the crucial issues of the Reformation, sola fide, that is faith alone. The Arminian often unwittingly must add the necessity of works to salvation and thereby denies one of the cardinal doctrines of the Reformation and more importantly of Scripture. So do you guys see why I said you don't want to be an Arminian around here? All right. And on a serious note, it is contrary to Scripture. And if that is something that you're wrestling with, I encourage you to wrestle then with it, to study that, to pray about it. And if you have questions, of course, I'm happy to help. Page 81. We'll start this for two minutes, and then we'll finish it next week. Experience, truth, and denominations. We've seen that the issues of polity, liturgy, and now soteriology, that is salvation, are major sources of denominational difference. With regard to liturgy, we've noted the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. Sacrament is often seen as conferring grace, an ordinance is a command to be obeyed. One of the dangers of a sacramental approach is ritualism, just going through the motions. We've seen that John Wesley agitated for reform in the Church of England, in part desiring to encourage, quote, individual devotion and piety in contrast to what he saw as the dead formalism of the Church of England. We will now survey the development of several denominations which originated due to a desire to emphasize an individual experience with God. We'll also see the further splintering of Protestant groups due to the rise of liberalism. So that is what we will look at then next week. You had lots of people who wanted a, a direct experience with God, and we will see how those revivals, frontier revivals, went, how they gave rise to some denominations that exist today. Uh, exist today. So this desire for experience and then also the rise of liberalism within the denominations and what effect that had. We'll see that next week, okay? Let's pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for allowing us to go through another year serving you, learning of you and walking with you. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be together these many weeks for this material in this series to understand better what your word teaches about these crucial issues. Yes, of how we're to be governed in your church. Yes, of how we are to worship in your church. And most important, how salvation is obtained and maintained. Lord, your word teaches that this is all of you and therefore the glory redounds all to you. Help us to be clear on that. And then help us to understand how the differences have arisen over a period of time centered around this issue of salvation, government, and, and, and liturgy. And, Lord, with a clear eye, help us to understand what we believe, to stand on what we believe, and to take joy in the truth that you have given us that tells us what we are to believe. We ask you, Lord, to go with us this week. Grant us a good time as we celebrate the turn of the new year. We ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.